Hello, this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chain and globalization. And today, communication and their effects on our life or work and our travel over recent times. Today on the show, we will be talking to Paul Rupert, president of Global Point View Limited, a strategy consulting firm that works with clients on global consultancy to direct C-suite engagements, which focus uh, revenue growth strategies. And Paul is in Washington, uh, D.C. He's an experienced executive in the field of CPAAS, which is Communications Platform as a Service, and mobile services, and has worked in both the private and the public sector. So some of the private sector customers or clients that Paul has had include Facebook, MasterCard, Western Union, uh, Warburg, Pincus, and One Equity Partners. And prior to entering the private sector, Paul received a master's degree from Harvard and served in policy and political roles in the U.S. government. So welcome, Paul, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Great to be here, Patrick, and thank you very much for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. You're very welcome. I look forward to I look forward to it. Also, could give you could you give us a quick overview of your career to date? You might build in that little bit about the uh, U.S. government. That kind of piqued <laughs> my interest there. Well, so- I grew up on the <laughs> banks of Rocky River, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, <laughs> almost that long, long ago. Um, you know, after the the great irony of how you know one's career runs, there's no linearity to it maybe you're if you're an academic there's like a high degree of linearity but um in my in my situation uh believe it or not i got recruited by the central intelligence agency for a job in what was called a career training program and uh, i had been studying politics and international relations as an undergraduate but it took me a long time to get there i thought i was going to start off becoming a doctor and the reality was i'll never get in um but i shifted to what really was um, of interest. And uh, I got a call one day from a recruiter and he told me his name was Bob Jones. And believe it or not, I still have all the details of all this. So six months of testing on a monthly basis and interviews and each step, if you, it was binary, you either made it or you didn't. So if you made it, you moved on to the next. And I ended up going to uh, being invited to Washington DC and spent four days here uh, visiting out there. But in the end, I got rejected. Okay. As are, these are, things happen, are all their all their recruiters called Bob Jones? I'm that is probably the case, <laughs> you know. And I even I had even asked him, you know, how did you find out about me? He goes, well, we have a number of different uh, networks within the faculty, universities, and others. Now, ironically, I thought that I. I wanted to become a naval intelligence officer before that. So I submitted the application and everything else and then got the physical. And they told me I was not physically qualified because it was too nearsighted. There were no wars going on back then, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how this all started. And when I didn't get in, I decided, okay, I'm going to move to Washington, D.C. and if I can see if I can get a job working on Capitol Hill or something along those lines. And so I did. And uh, after about two months of waiting tables as a waiter, I got an offer to join the U.S. Senator's office. Uh, There's always a backstory to everything here in the context of I had uh, been a a, a campaign volunteer to his campaign and knew some people on the staff who had been working the campaign. And once I got to Washington, there was a slight door opening as to, yeah, this is a guy who's we've already worked with, you know, he is. And I ended up working 
in the political realm for about a decade. And in that context, I moved from being a legislative assistant to a U.S. senator, uh, then got trained to run political campaigns, which is essentially marketing. Uh, ran a House race in Iowa, a Senate race in Ohio, which is where I grew up, as I mentioned, and um, also became a trade association uh, technology lobbyist. So I was lobbying the congressional uh, hallways and things of that nature. And um, eventually, I even became an economic advisor to a U.S. cabinet secretary on a thing called economic economic development zones, enterprise zones, excuse me, which was an idea that Margaret Thatcher had developed in the development of Canary Wealth, Canary Wharf over in London. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we stole that and I was responsible for that implementation. But after a fashion, you got to the point where I knew that I wasn't going to be um, moving up in the world. You know, whether I'd go to law school or something else, I decided to go to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. But while I was there, I recognized that I really should have gone to business school because um, I had tapped out. But I stayed another two years until I actually, e you know, ejected from that constellation and then moved into another one, um, primarily because of connections and networking. You know, I had access to a cabinet secretary I would work for. And I said, this is what I'm interested in doing. Who should I talk to? He goes, yeah, I'll give you six names by tomorrow. And so I ended up talking to some investment bankers. And at the same time, I was looking, I happened to be half French and I was looking at opportunities that might be going on in Europe. And the lines converged where um, an investment banker was essentially telling me, you should be looking at mobile telecommunications because that's what we're looking at. And this was in 1996, mind you, 1995. Um, so at that point, there were already investments being made that were behind the curtain. They hadn't gone to market yet, but mobile telecommunications companies, the likes of which include today's AT&T, which was combined, um, you know, an operator called Pacific Bell Mobile Services. And that's how I ended up getting into PBMS and starting my career in the telecommunications business. And again, interests and drive and opportunity. Um, I was a product development director, but I knew nothing about the technology of the business you know, that enabled a telephone call to occur, let alone a text message. But when I got hired, they were very direct and they said, that's okay, because 95% of the people in the office don't have any experience in it either. But we brought in guys from the UK. We hired people from other places where it already been, meaning at the GSM system that we all operate now uh, under. Um, and we were one of the first GSM operators in North America. And so I started looking at what was going on as a product development director in the early markets, more mature markets than ours, because I was in California, uh, in Silicon Valley. And so I started learning more and more and more about what was going on in the UK and France and Germany, you know, and these entities called Vodafone and O2 and uh, like, wow, okay, I can steal that playbook and apply it here, which is essentially how I started working my job. And I said, hey, here's this idea. Here's the, here's the development of the idea. And I had already started doing networking into these other mobile network operators because um, they were trying to make connections with us. And then I came across the concept of international roaming. And we didn't have what was called an international roaming director 
But wow, everybody else around the world, especially in Europe, had these guys who were and women who were responsible for the B2B contracts, uh, the contracts that enable you to get off a get onto a plane in Dublin. Maybe you're a Vodafone uh, Ireland subscriber, get off a plane in San Francisco and that phone immediately working. More importantly, there was commercial arrangements that had already been established so that while you're there visiting our network in Pacific Bell Mobile Services, meaning California, all of that was being accounted for and paid out at the end of the month. And I recognized that um, I took it to a new CEO who had just come in and he had more info, more exposure to the international side. And I said, you know, um, we are the seventh largest economy in the world in California, mm -hmm. yet we have fewer roaming connections than people like in Switzerland. You know, he knew immediately where I was going. And by that afternoon, I became the international roaming director for the company, tasked with go out and build this business as fast as you can. I was very lucky because one of the most profitable and uh, largest sources of revenue and profit, as I mentioned, in the portfolio of services at that time, emphasize that time, was international traffic. We had guys in California who were literally dropping $40,000 a month on their mobile phone bills because they were either traveling all over the world most of them were bankers or they were calling people all over the world. And, you know, that was the heady days, the salad days of international roaming before government intervention <laughs> was, no, this is far too profitable for you. So that's how I started off in the business. And from there, after a fashion, I was, you know, a large company. In, in their wisdom, they were dropping about $200,000 or I was spending about $200,000 a, a year on travel because I would be going to Europe for two weeks, meeting with all the people in Dublin or in London or in Paris or whatever, come back to California, stay two or three weeks, and then go to Asia and do the same thing in Hong Kong, et cetera. And that was my routine. It was a great job, great job. However, as I said, you know, the 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 brains of bureau bureaucrats felt that I should be reassigned to handset distribution in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> now, nothing a, wrong with Nashville, a, Tennessee. A calm down, huh? Yeah. Well, not really. You know, the whole idea was, well, this is going to be a career opportunity for you. And I'm like, this is, this is a career opportunity. <laughs> and ironically, a friend of mine had started a, a friend who I got acquainted because they were trying to hire me at one point. He just when he was in a different company, a larger, um, you know, multinational type telecommunications company, um, and he uh, decided to start his own firm. And that's when he said, "This is the idea that I've got, and I want you to come in and help us build out the international side. Could you put together a plan? I wanted you to meet with our board like within the next two weeks. I'm like, how much are you getting?" About $3 million were in our Series A. Well, $3 million in 2001 was a considerable amount of money for a startup. Mm. And um, I decided, yeah, this is the right time. So I jumped into a startup. And even though when he first explained it to me, I was like, that's BS. You can't do that. The whole idea was, the premise was, is that um, Within the GSM radio format, there is a native telecommunications communications capability called SMS, for short message servicing. Uh, 
and it was just within the GSM construct. Well, these guys, they were not the only ones, but these, you know, my friend decided that there's a way to get around this using IP connectivity, internet protocol connectivity. And what that meant was, okay, all these other mobile operators that are using non-GSM radio formats like IDEN, like Handyphone in Japan, IDEN was a, uh, a company called Nextel in the United States, uh, CDMA, which stands for Code Division Multiple Access Telecommunications, this is all radio spectrum technologies. It would open it up to the entire world, essentially. And once I realized, yeah, this is possible, you know, we we knew we had a genie in a bottle. And within five years, we drove from essentially about a million in revenues to uh, 160 million in revenues. And we sold it for $430 million, which was a pretty good run. We didn't do the IPO thing, but um, and I didn't get founder shares or anything like that, but I, I did okay as a result of five years of building out that business. And ironically, um, a vision that I had at the beginning, not that it was all about me, 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 by no means. Um, I recognized that there'd be more traffic, more opportunity around the world to access the American markets than vice versa. And by the time we sold the company, I owned, I was responsible for about 65% of the revenues of the company, the international side. And then after fashion started moving into these companies started to develop, grow very quickly as sometimes, you know, wildfire type economy, wildfire innovation occurs. Um, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger. And after I get, left the company that um, we sold, I was approached in a conference where I had a conversation with a, another guy in a startup, a fairly well-known startup at that stage. And we were going back and forth on how non-carriers could drive text messaging in the social media world. And then he, after the meeting, after the presentation, as I put it, we're in violent agreement with each other. We were just looking at it from different perspectives of the same coin. And um, he ended up talking to me afterwards. Would you be interested in doing consulting work? I'm like, well, tell me a little bit more about you guys. I know a little bit about you. You're in university. You're on University Avenue in Palo Alto. He's like, yeah, yeah, you, you know about us then. Yeah, you're above a pizza shop, et cetera. That was Facebook. <laughs> so my first client as a consultant was Facebook. Now, mind you, because of the experiences that I'd had, principally at Pacific Bell, I had already worked with the likes of McKinsey and Accenture, et cetera. So I had a, a sense of what that was all about. So that's where my career path kind of bifurcated. You know, I'd already gone from one bifurcation, you know, fork in the road, if you will, from government to to private sector, and then within the telecommunications world went from executive into consultant and have been doing consulting work since about 2008. And then a few times as a result of being a consultant, I've been brought in as an executive full-time. And then at Global Point View Limited, which is your your current um, business, yeah. what, what, what does that business do? What kind of clients do you have and what kind of ways do you help them? Yeah, I've got a, um, a variety of different uh, enterprise clients, as well as trade association clients. The bottom line is, how can they better and more effectively leverage 
text communications, messaging, and now other forms of communications on an integrated and elevated way than they've been doing in the past. Now, that's an arc, as I say, this is now about 15 years into the engagements that I've been doing. I have about 40 different client engagements in that time frame. Um, originally, it was just basic alerts and notifications relative to utilizing the messaging platform. Um, but now it's much more multifaceted because we're talking about text messaging in a mu much more different way than just text anymore with the likes of rich business messaging or rich communication services, which are uh, much more involved, much more interactive, uh, much more visual in the power of a text message, but also integrating the other elements, which include SM, excuse me, which include email as well as video. Uh, and integrating all of these things so that regardless of a consumer's desire, they can receive a message anytime, anywhere, on any platform they choose. And on the back end of all of that is the enterprise is able to figure out even such things leveraging AI and machine learning that if you were to, let's say, make a call to Vodafone Ireland for some customer service issue, um, they're able to identify sentiment and intent for that call because of all the information that's available you, to you, whether it's open source or whether it's part of your billing system to be able to integrate all of that. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you're much more happier to have a call whenever you want to have it doesn't have to be between working hours of nine and five, five days a week. It could be at three o'clock in the morning and there may be an AI interface for, for that. So that's kind of things that I've been doing and moving from, as well as consulting back to the messaging industry itself, you know, former competitors, in fact, mm -hmm. I've been brought in as well as the principal trade associations, the GSM association is one of my clients again, on the utilization and the leveraging of rich communication services. Okay. And so uh, um, CPAAS. Com yeah, communications platform. platforms as a as service. As a service. What exactly is that? And how does it find application with your clients in the corporate world and in sure. transformation? So the bottom line there, it's just that uh, you don't have to put together all of this network and infrastructure of connectivity to engage and leverage the telecommunications platforms. You just go to somebody and all of this is obviously managed by these vendors, my clients, um, or they're on one side of the table, the other side of the table are the enterprises. So the enterprises can just say, I want you to manage all of this because candidly, it's just too complicated relative to when, how, what technology is integrated, what APIs are associated with what my needs are, what we can do, what you can do. And then eventually is that message going to be delivered to the consumer? And are we going to be able to have a, um, a communications conversation, what's called conversational commerce with that, uh, that consumer. So in respect to the, um, the means to be able to manage all of this, it's essentially simplifying all the different complexities, not only the billing aspects of it, uh, how you know the throughput of it, compliance with the various governmental entities or the industry entities all around the world because they're very different. 
Ofcom in the UK has a different perspective on uh, enterprise messaging than uh, specific types of enterprise messaging and use cases than the FCC does in the US. The FCC is actually lesser of a uh, regulatory body than the industry itself. So we're very much self-regulated, which then translates into, well, these are really, the regulation is based on an association of private contracts between the various commercial entities. You as an enterprise, me as a vendor. So all this gets wrapped up into uh, one effort. And so I provide direction to the enterprises themselves as to how to leverage text messaging more effectively for their specific use case. And that use case could be logistics, like what you're involved in. Uh, insurance, government, gaming, uh, financial services is obviously the most prevalent in this space, or just alerts and notifications that are utilized by Google, Meta, uh, in or any of the other large hyperscaled technology companies. And then on the other side of the is essentially providing strategy and direction to the vendors as to where is the, the industry going. What are the other technologies and innovations that you need to be aware of and cognizant of to better position yourself strategically and competitively in the marketplace? And are your clients the vendors, the solutions providers, or the corporates that use those services, or both? Both, both, yeah. So my my niche now within the enterprise side seems to be call center as a service providers uh, or customer care as a service providers. Uh, primarily because many of them have challenges relative to compliance, and they're also recognizing the best way for them to communicate with their consumers, whether they may be credit card holders or whatever it might be, um, they recognize that text messaging is the most effective way to reach. And that's regardless of economies, if you think about it. Even at the bottom of the pyramid, this is, text messaging is still the most effective uh, way to be able to communicate with individuals. It's also read within three minutes, 98% of the time, uh, versus a three-day uh, lag in the email. <laughs> uh, it can be any 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 human being with a t with a mobile phone, whether it's a feature phone or whether it's a smartphone, which is prevalent in the UK and the Europe and in the US. Um, but otherwise, if it's sub-Saharan Africa, we can send a text message to them mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And that can include payments, payments transfers, uh, remittances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's pretty versatile. So the future of conversational commerce, say, you know, I, like most people, are terribly frustrated, for example, <laughs> with um, utilities operators, mobile phone operators, calling them with anything to do with the with the service. Um it, it just invariably seems to be a frustrating process. So interested in this conversational commerce with AI, where, where is that headed? And is it going to get better for us? Well, let's hope so. You know, it, AI within the public consciousness is only about a year old, I guess in the last few days. Um, ChatGPT uh, celebrated its first year. Ironically, I have a friend who's not in this business who has an undergraduate degree in artificial intelligence that he earned 25 years ago. And, and as he always jokes, he's in marketing. He's like, you know, I was told there's no opportunity for me. So I be went off and became an English as a second language teacher in Japan. I did, I did, I did that as well. I did that. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and that's how he ended up starting his career 25 years ago. Um, but 
you know, theoretically, the projections, you know, so those are the two caveats. The projections are that, yes, artificial intelligence can be incorporated into this objective of having full conversational commerce capabilities. And that gets to the point where you as a consumer, there's going to have to be some kind of entity that is going to be processing the data, you know, consumer data program um, that's integrating what is known about you or what can be ascertained or projected about you. That's the intent or the sentiment. The sentiment is essentially an emotional measure of your mindset at the time. Now, where that's going to come from, I don't know. I'm a commercial guy. You know, I can figure out how to be able to position this and sell this really effectively and market it very effectively, but commercial, uh, technologically becomes a different question. But the idea here is that that, that, uh, core capability will be able to utilize and bring in the various types of platforms, and it's all going to be integrated into one effort, therefore elevating the customer experience that you're seeking, that we all seek um, in terms of can it be done efficiently, can it be done effectively, can it be done in a timely manner, uh, all within your level of patience as well as the capability to serve your interests and needs at the time. Or demands at the time. Yeah, yeah, you know when we when we when we interact with ChatGPT, we're cautioned with regard to confidential information and so on, uh, with regard to what we reveal to it. So when people are integrating AI into their business applications, how are they navigating the associated complexities with cyber security and business intelligence and this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's that's going to be a made that is a major challenge um, outside of conversational commerce, but even within conversational commerce, there are going to have to be various types of um, protections and policies that need to be fulfilled. I mean, even as I mentioned earlier, there are already policies relative to opt in, opt out on text messaging in the UK, in the US, et cetera, that if you're not willing to share that information, you can opt out from having that type of interaction based on that platform, that's going to be a challenge. Um, but, you know, instead of looking at it negatively, oh, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to approach that. I try to look at it positively relative to, you know, the dynamics of innovation and IT continue to progress forward. Sometimes there are unexpected consequences as a result of that progress, but progress is still made nonetheless. It's interesting, you know, we, we could go as I'm talking to you and I'm learning a new questions coming to mind. We could we could delve into this more, but, but the, the clock is against us. So I'm going to change tack um, slightly and maybe just put the, the business stuff to one side and just get an idea of kind of how you have developed over the years as a, as a, as a professional and a person. So what, what would you say through your career has been maybe the most important life lesson that you've learned along the way that has stood by you all the way through? Uh, I guess uh, there are two Winston Churchill quotes um, <laughs> that come to mind to me. Uh, never, ever, ever, ever give up. Maybe I tossed in an extra ever there. Or the other one, which is, um, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, the, the reality is that things change. It just may not be what your expectations were at the moment, but things change. Uh, as I said, I started off my undergraduate 
uh, journey thinking that I'd go to medical school and started trying to study biology. I should have recognized my first semester when I failed chemistry <laughs> and I had to take it the following year to get that off my record. Thankfully I did. Um, but the reality is that, you know, the path you take is very much determined by your own personal goals as well as externalities that sometimes you don't control or externalities that you might be able to control. Mm -hmm. So in that regard, do what you can when you can, um, but don't be overly disappointed. You know, it, it, I could have just as easily had a 25 year career in the United States Navy if, um, if I had better genetics in my vision. <laughs> <laughs> and although it's fading, it's fading into the rear view mirror at this stage, thank God. Um, the experience of, of COVID through 2020, 21, 22, did that change? Did it refine or did it reinforce any of your own personal views or beliefs about work, about life, about business and so on? Well, back to, you know, the second quote, if you're going through hell, keep going. Um, just generically and generally for all of us going through that time. Um, well, you know, what we're doing right now is a, a, a favorable uh, expect, not expectation, but a favorable outcome of something that was developed primarily as a result of COVID. Now, the demand curve on that just took off like wildfire, um, but it had already been in the works for some time. I happen to be a member of a thing called Lunch Club. And I joined Lunch Club, which is a referral. It's essentially a networking service, a networking application. Originally, it was face-to-face, -face, and it went completely online. And as a result, I got invited by somebody else and realized that I could be talking to people all over the world just having a conversation. So those two things were both favorable outcomes of, you know, and unfavorable circumstances. Now, I will say this. Bottom line, this may be my personal bias because I uh, spent a lot of time on the road through the years. I think I was 2.75 million air miles with United Airlines alone. I always lived by the adage, which was, if you want to know, you've got to go. And the people that I've worked with, large companies, small companies, because of the stuff that I do on an international and global basis, it was always down to... As one head of sales once told me in a billion-dollar company I was in called Cineverse, it's like, I want you to close that deal for us. You get you know, the, our guy in Hong Kong, and I want the two of you to park yourself in the lobby of the offices of Globe in the Philippines, in Manila. And I had turnover, and I'm like, look, Alf, his name is Alf DeCardanius, great guy, overly aggressive. But I said, look, Alf, the reality is, if I were to do that, I'm going to be looking at two guys who carry shotguns at reception. That's not going to work. We're going to have to figure something else out. <laughs> All right, well, go do that. Get on a plane and sort it out. Yes, I did that. Sorted it out after a week in Manila, et cetera. So that's why this adage of mine comes down to, at the end of the day, if you want to know, you got to go. You got to eyeball it. Yeah, there are there are certain things, certain meetings, certain events that you you just have to be there but i i i think that there's there's a lot that was superfluous and that has that has gone by the way yeah granted you know we're all human beings so yeah. that that's that's to be expected but you know i i've heard listen to podcast guys who are in the private equity world talking about deals done you know during covid etc but they also come back to 
that's not the case any longer. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of back to a new normal, which may be more, more um, circumspect on, do you really need to make that trip? But I'll, I'll tell you another, just my own personal experience. Maybe some of your listeners would be interested in how to make, how to ascertain whether you need to go at times. Uh, I remember and again, in that startup, when we started to take off, um, I was going to Hong Kong and it was a week out and I still hadn't gotten certain that I was going to have any meetings. And it got closer and closer and closer. And literally two days before, no meetings. Did I tell my boss, hey, I don't have any meetings because I knew if I did, he said, scrap the trip. But in the back of my mind, I also knew that the people I know that I was, these were not like cold calls or anything, maybe a few, but I knew that if I got there and sent them a note, hey, I just flew in from Washington, 12 hours of hell. I'm at the hotel. I hope we can meet this time sometime this week. You know, the point there is I've just spent 12 hours coming to see you. And by the time the trip was over, the entire calendar had been filled. But that's also a cultural dynamic as well. I mean, sometimes that's how it works out. And so you got to be aware of that. So that was one of, that was one of those, you know, let's say career lessons at walking away thinking, ah, okay, I don't, I don't have to be so anal about some of this stuff, different ways, different ways, still gets it done. Yeah. It's amazing. Not, not, not everything that came out of COVID was bad, I guess. So, uh, Paul, many thanks. Uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. We may, maybe should do this again, as I said. There's yeah, no- you know, Patrick, I was ready to talk about the correlation between text messaging delivery and the logistics business. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh well, we'll have to we'll have to wait for another for another occasion. But now, now we're in now we're in contact. Let's let's. let's I'd put, love to do it anytime put, you'd like. Let's put another date in the in the calendar. Um, so it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you, Paul. Same here, Patrick. Have a great day. And thanks thanks to your listeners. And thanks also to our listeners for tuning in again today. And be aware that if you enjoyed this episode, you can find a full series of nearly 140 episodes at this stage of Interlinks on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Acast, and other major podcast platforms. So until next time, keep well and stay safe.